Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Intelligent Advisor, the audio podcast for a new generation of financial professionals, brought to you by Advisor 2.0. These podcasts are produced and sponsored by Regis Media, a niche provider of content and social media marketing for financial advice and planning firms. I'm Robin Powell. This time, I'm speaking to Alan Smith, founder of Capital Asset Management based in London. I've been a big admirer of Alan's firm for many years now. So what's the secret? What makes capital's value proposition different? Why does it charge fixed fees rather than percentage fees? And what advice would Alan give to people starting out in the financial planning profession or setting up their own firms? Enjoy the interview. So, Alan, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Good to be here, Robert. Brilliant. So, Alan, tell me briefly about your background and how capital asset management started? Uh, Yes, sure, I can. Um, We are a business that was formed in, amazingly, a long time ago, 2004. So it was May May of 2004 that we got going, or I should say I got going, because that's what it was. I was a sole trader, um, what we used to affectionately refer to as a one-man band. Uh, And I set myself up as a sort of independent financial advisor uh, in a small office in central London, you're approaching 17 years ago. So somebody said to me the other day, you're a 17 years overnight success. It's taken a while to get to get where we are. <laughs> so for those who aren't you know, aware of the sort of firm that, that, that Capital is, what, what kind of distinguishes you, if you like, from, from you know, all those other uh, financial planning advice firms out there? Well, the only thing I, I would say, uh, Robin, is that what I've done over the years, and in fact, when I started, because my history before setting up was working in, in, in large kind of institutional asset management company, uh, and I was always a kind of a student of the industry, if you like. I was always somebody that would be intrigued and curious about what was going on with other firms. And I still am. And, I, and I, I've always sort of sought out what I consider to be best practice. What are the best ways of doing the various component parts that make up the uh, the the role and the, the, sort of the type of business. So I, I studied what I perceived as being really good firms in the UK, but also overseas in the US, Australia, other sort of um, markets and communities where there was, you know, there were definitely some good businesses and they were doing some great things. So over the years, and this is just, it's my opinion, it's my colleague's opinion, but we have distilled down all the various component parts that we believe um, when put together represent what we call the gold standard of, um, of financial planning, financial advice, investment counselling, mm. all those sort of things. And so, you know, a very brief checklist would be you, you, you need to be technically competent. You need to know what you're doing. So for us nowadays, uh, the chartered badge is, is mm. sort of the, the gold standard for that. So all our advisors are chartered financial planners um, and some are sort of uh, qualified to a higher level even than that. And we're a, a chartered financial planning firm. So we have corporate chartered status. And again, there's no guarantee um, of, of, of excellence or brilliance, but the chances are, it, to me, that provides a filter uh, because there aren't that many overall, even now, uh, firms where they are where they are chartered, qualified. So um, that level of qualification, and then the other part is that we deliver what I call real financial planning, and we do it 
pretty much to every client that we come across, which is, you know, a very rigorous, a very um, complex, and it can be a very time-consuming process to go through. But we're of the mind that we simply cannot function. We cannot do the rest of our job unless we get the planning aspect of it right. Um, so we spend a great deal of time using the latest sophisticated mm. technology uh, to crunch the numbers, uh, to, 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 to help the clients build a structured model, a structured plan, and we frankly think that's where most of the value lies, is the planning, the consulting, and the strategy is behind you know, identifying where the client is and where they're trying to get to. So planning is very important. Uh, and the, the other part that we think is, is absolutely essential is having a very clear, um, proven method of allocating client resources in order to give them the best possible chance of achieving the outcomes that they have made clear within the plan. So, you know, there's lots of phrases used for it. I think we use the phrase evidence-based investing. Uh, but we we embrace a philosophy, an investment philosophy, that we fundamentally, everyone in the company believes in. We stand by it. We think it's proven. Uh, we think it works. And frankly, we think it's fairly simple and straightforward. It's not overly complicated to explain, which is important as well. Uh, and, the, and, and the final part that maybe mm. makes us stand out from, from some of the other, some other firms out there is that we're we're big fans of the idea of behavioral coaching. Uh, we recognize that all the mm. you know all the logical approaches we, we assume you know there's, there's obviously there's been lots and lots uh, written in the subject of behavioral economics and behavioral finance over the years and we're big students uh, of that whole concept in that you know left to one's own devices us human beings we're not particularly well wired we're, we're wired incorrectly we'll tend to blow ourselves up and make the wrong decisions um, mainly out of um, emotion just at the time when we need to sort of take a deep breath uh, and and sort of make more sensible decisions based upon the information that's in front of us so i think there's a huge role for thoughtful financial planners to play in the lives of our clients to provide that sort of um, that comforting second opinion that sounding board and that sort of mentoring approach. So, so coaching, behavioral coaching in particular, is an important part. So all the things I've just mentioned, you sort of put them together into a, a pretty, you know, hopefully a straightforward client proposition that the client or the prospective client gets, can understand, and is happy to engage with. So we're, we're, we're far more about all that sort of stuff than we ever have been about products, investments, trying to beat the market, and all the more perhaps more traditional things that exist across the sort of the broader financial advice spectrum. Alan, on, on this series, you know, I, I try to uh, get away from kind of uh, evidence-based investing and, and you know, the, the, the best way to invest and, and so on. At, at the time of recording uh, this interview, uh, though, uh, Neil Woodford is very much uh, to the fore again. We've just heard that he's going to launch uh, a new firm. Um What's your view on that? <laughs> Surprise, <laughs> I think would be the uh, the initial one. As I understand it, Robert, I, frankly, I don't I don't follow it uh, overly closely. We've we, we've never recommended any of our clients invest in Woodford funds for all the the, the reasons that have been well documented and you've talked about in the past. Um, but just don't believe in the in the concept or the cult of a star manager um, because almost without exception, the, the star tends to fall to earth. Usually, and it's had happened in the Woodford case. I'm surprised that whilst the, the whole debacle has still been unravelled, and um, 
my, my observation on it is there's a lot of retail customers and clients, um, many of whom bought directly through the DIY platforms, and some, many also bought through or were recommended by their advisors to hold these funds. But they're, they're still very much underwater. There's an expectation of significant capital losses, and this is irreversible capital losses. This is not sort of short-term volatility, which is an entirely different thing. This is money which is never going to be recovered, it would appear to me. There's a lot of um, people whose reputations are at stake in terms of custodians, uh, ACDs, and so on. Um, and uh, I, I don't know, it just seems to me just an inopportune time to go public and announce the relaunch of a new business while all this mess is still being slowly unraveled. And I'll say one thing that I've always believed in, it's very easy to look at look at data, look at numbers, look at things like assets under management and look at all these sort of very, the, the sort of information and data, the big corporates and that lots of people like to look at. And I've always wanted to sort of lift the lid on this sort of stuff and say that behind all this are real people, real families trying to fund their own retirements trying to help their kids on the property ladder, fund education, help grandchildren. There's a real human story behind, you know, every penny, every dollar, everything that's invested, whether it's Woodford or anyone else. This is not money that's thrown into the mix just as just, you know, just for fun. There are expectations, there are hopes, there are there, there, there are real, as I say, real people, real families. And so for those reasons, as, as, as well as, you know, all, all the obvious ones, I just think it's... Um, it's a fairly, I use the word audacious, it's a very audacious approach to relaunch a fund whilst families are still being significantly affected and, are, and, and undoubtedly there's a level of anxiety and confusion has been created in the wake of Mr. some of Mr. Woodford's decisions over the years. I, I will just ask you one final question on, on, on this, if I may. There's a lot being written at the moment about, you know, whether the lessons have been learned, and, and this is particularly in relation to the FCA, uh, because of course you know we are still waiting for the official inquiry uh, into what went on. And do you think advisors have learned? You know, clearly there were a lot of advisors who have recommended Woodford, and of course <laughs> there are lots of advisors who recommended him when he was at Invesco. And, and actually, they would say, you know, that their clients did uh, very well out of that. Um, but 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 what about those who, you know, jumped in when he set up his last firm? Um, and, you know, do, do you think they've learned their lessons, generally speaking? Um, the evidence would seem to suggest not, which, again, is another part, I think, of the human condition we love superstars, whether it's in sports, uh, the media, you know, television, movies, and what have you. We like the idea. We just, we just do. We're, we're attracted to it. Again, it's, it's part of the human condition. If you reflect on the sort of approach that a firm like ours takes, frankly, it's pretty dull. There are no star managers. There's no front page headlines. It's a very sort of steady as she goes, long term, evidence based, you know, thoughtful. Um, almost scientific approach. And that just doesn't capture front page headlines. And so I think it applies all the way through. You know, we've I've certainly over the years had clients that's, that have said to me that this investment approach, it's a bit dull. Haven't you got anything more exciting? And, you know, the answer is no. And, you know, we often quote the, uh, the famous uh, Warren Buffett quote, which is, if you want the excitement, take up skydiving. You know, don't, don't do it with your investment portfolio. But, uh, but not everyone embraces that. And so, as we know, the, the media um, mm. perpetrate this. 
uh, investment managers do it, advisors do it, and cu- clients and customers themselves do it as well. So overall, and, and, and you know, indeed, I, I th- I, from where I've um, been sitting, I think the regulator has been asleep at the wheel on this, not only this, because this was posted up by people like me and you and others years ago. There was, you know, there was definitely some concerns were being raised and not a lot was going on, not a lot was happening. Um, and so overall, I'd like to think lessons have been learned. I think overall, my my take on it is that slowly but surely, there's another percent or two of the advisory community that have woken up and said, you know what, I think there's a be- there must be a better way. This will be the last star manager that I get behind because I'm not convinced that it's necessarily you know, the, the right thing to do. I think this stuff, Robin, I think it's a, it's a generational issue. I think it takes years and years, decades, and so on, um, to turn around. But if you look at the underlying uh, evidence, there's been a massive shift towards you know low-cost, in, uh, index-based uh, investing over the years, over the last five or ten years. And so, mm. you know, it's, it is, it's a huge – I mean, literally in the UK alone, it's, I can't, it's a multi-trillion pound industry. And it doesn't just flip a switch overnight. There's too many vested interests. There's lots of other parties at play here. There's lots of money at stake. And it's not just going to flip overnight. But I think, you know, slowly but surely, the sands are shifting. Change is happening. And as I look around in my sort of small sector of the world, in my community, more and more of the people that I know and I like and I respect in financial planning are adopting you know, a, a more sort of evidence-based approach to investing and are leaving behind the cult of the star manager and sort of moving, you know, clients from one fund to the other. And I think that also ties in with the fundamental idea of what is your proposition? What do you do in an advisory capacity? Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is one of the things that I have witnessed because I would, you know, I I am much to my horror, but I am considered a veteran now in the industry and I've been in it a long time. You know, when I started, that was a lot of what the proposition was all about. It was about, I'll find you the best fund manager. I'll do my research. I'll mm-hmm. find you the best fund manager. And when he goes off the boil or she goes off the boil, I'll find a new one, a better one, a shinier one. And we'll move your money from, from A to B to C to D. And that was considered a, you know, a value proposition. And in some quarters, I have to say, it still is. But slowly but surely, slowly but surely, mm-hmm. the tides are turning. Things are changing. And I think a lot of it is it's... It's, it's a bit of a kind of snowball which gathers momentum after a while. You have people like me banging on about this, and then you get others saying the same sort of thing. And then you get clients themselves. You get clients of, of firms like ours experiencing real financial planning and going through that process and really having a, a massively positive experience about this. And, and we, don't, we talk very little about investments with our, with our clients. We tell them that we've, you know, this in, in our professional opinion is as good as it gets. This is this is distilled down years and years and years of wisdom to being the, the best and most reliable, predictable um, engine to help drive what's really important to you, which is achieving all the things in Europe for, for you and your family that you deem to be essential and and of high value. So I think that's that, that's kind of where the change is happening. It's happening over time. It's driven by a number of different factors, but because the emphasis is, is becoming increasingly um, placed upon the concept of structure planning, um, you know, mapping out the future. The the you know, fund manager A versus fund manager B is just that's just not the you know where the action is anymore in in you know large parts of the industry. So as a as a business owner, you you you've been 
building uh, capital asset management, as you say, for, for 17 years now. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure you've picked up a, <laughs> a huge number of lessons along along the way. I mean, what, what, what are the main lessons that you, 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 know, you might want to share maybe with um, people sort of earlier on in their in their careers looking at building successful uh, financial planning businesses? Good question. And I, I give this a lot of thought. And, you know, I reflect back on, on those years. And we've certainly, as a business and as individuals, we've come a long way. And one of the things that we, I think we've been very good at as, as individuals is, well, there's, there's two things that always spring to mind to me. It's a sense of empathy. Um, it's this sense of really seeing things from the client's viewpoint and then create a proposition that, that, that sort of responds to that. When I, when I first started, it was, it was all about you know, choosing funds. And we used to produce these beautiful pie charts and graphs and your, your, your portfolio is up 10%, it's down 10% and blah, blah, blah. But that never seemed to really answer the fundamental questions that our clients were having. And I used to have great you know, in-depth conversations with clients and, and really try to understand you know, what, kind of what was our purpose, what were we trying to do. It wasn't just about choosing funds because that, whereas that was quite helpful, um, or perceived to be helpful, it wasn't really life changing. And so when you when I started asking more and more about you know what the issues were, what the questions were, and this this applies still to this day, uh, the single biggest question that whether whether it was articulated the same way or not, but fundamentally, it's are we going to be okay? Do we have enough? And that, that applies across the board from the wealthiest to people I've ever met to people of less affluence. It's a sense of comfort, reassurance, peace of mind. How can we create that? How can we deliver that? Because that's really what we are selling. So I think having a strong sense of empathy, asking your clients and getting, you know, going deep and then deeper still to really get to the fundamental root of what's keeping them awake at night, where the anxiety, if there is any, lies, what the questions and concerns are, and then reverse engineering such that you've got a, a, a value proposition that you can articulate clearly that's going to solve that question. So I think empathy is a massive one. And going hand in hand with that is just a strong sense of curiosity. It's just forever asking questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned before that um, my, my journey on the investment side of things was just born out of curiosity. I just constantly thought there's going to be a better way. And that's applied across mm-hmm. the board in, in for me, my colleagues and the whole company, whether it's technology, you know, innovation, how, how to manage money, how to charge professional fees, any number of other things. We just, we kind of, we don't let up. We're, we're relentless. We're constantly curious to identify, to, you know, to just to continue to move the needle. I think you need to, you can't be satisfied with the status quo because status quo will soon overtake you and you'll be left behind. Mm. And also I just find this stuff interesting. You know, why would you not wish to learn about the latest uh, technology, the, the latest thoughts, the latest ideas, uh, and then consider if if they apply, because they don't always apply, but if they apply to your own business, to your proposition, how you speak with clients, how you, how, you know, how the business is structured. So I think those two things, Rob, if I was sort of starting out, I'd really want to focus on empathy, getting it, getting sort of under the skin of the clients and what their issues are, and then be relentlessly curious, be, be passionate about listening to, reading, understanding what you perceive as being and, and also not just from our industry look up look further afield look look to to tech look to um, sport look to art look to other areas where you where you see excellence being created and being developed and then say how does that apply 
into my world. I'm a business owner in a in a in a completely different area, uh, content uh, production and distribution and, and and social media and so on. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but the most important lessons I've learned have have resulted from mistakes, and <laughs> almost yeah. invariably, the the bigger mistake, the 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 more important the kind of learning experience. So, yeah. um, w- what mistakes have have you made in in the past that you've learned from and and you know is there anything you've actually really changed your opinion on over the years yeah there's probably quite a lot of things mistakes i again made every mistake under the sun i've i've I've, um i've wasted a lot of money in the business and uh as has been said elsewhere i i just don't necessarily know where it's all been wasted i just know i have done um to answer maybe both those questions at the same time, mistakes I've made and what I've changed my mind on. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was when you're a startup business, you know, as um, to quote my my dad, every penny's a prisoner. You know, every penny in and out of the business, you are absolutely mm-hmm. uh, focused on, and therefore I was I was very hesitant to spend any money in the business, and that would that applied to hiring hiring people. So we wouldn't, you know, I I, I would look at a. If I was recruiting, I'd look at a CV and, and I'd look at um, what their salary expectations were, and the lower the better, as far as I'm concerned. Which was a complete, in time, I realised, complete false economy, because I, I've really come to the conclusion now. And I, I define people in, ter- you know, in terms of staff and colleagues and, and um, team members as um, you know A, B, and C. And I I only want to work with A players. Mm. And the definition of an A player, I'm not sure whether where I picked this up, but it's some business book or other. But an A player would be considered in the top 10% of their category and their pay grade uh, across the UK, across the country. And mm. and, a, and a, you know a, a B would be in sort of top 25%, and a C is kind of every, the, every, everyone else, sort of the, the average person. And what I came to realize is the difference between an, an A player and a B player. Salary-wise, it might be 10, 15, 20%, but in actual productivity-wise, ideas, insight, contribution, it is exponential. It's a multiple of that. And so ultimately, eventually, having hired quite a number of people early on, they just weren't a great fit, didn't get it, didn't understand, weren't passionate, weren't behind it. They were looking for a paycheck um, more than being part of a a vision. Um, And that was kind of, that was pretty disruptive to have people come and go in the early years. And eventually I realized, no, I need to sort of up my game, get the best possible people. And all of a sudden, if you get, if you get five, 10, 15 A players together in an organization, all of a sudden you can take off like a rocket ship. Yes. It's going to cost you more in terms of compensation, packaging, yeah. salaries, all the rest of it, but it's worth it. Absolutely worth it. So I, I would absolutely reckon it. You know, I, I've said hire people that you think you can't afford. Because you look at you look at sort of salary expectations, you think oh, yeah. that's, that's going to push us a lot. But then you realise once this person is working alongside you, it, you know it all comes together very, very, very nicely. So that's that's definitely something. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. You know, your your business, any business, is only as good as as, as the people in it. So 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 recruitment and professional yeah. development as well of of staff and and encouraging you know your your staff to be the best versions of themselves they can possibly be and they're all really really important um if i could ask you about uh remuneration of when i say remuneration we were just talking about how much you pay advisors but i'm specifically talking about what your clients pay you for your services now you have a 
fixed fee model, which, which still in the UK is quite unusual. It's it's much more common mm. in the United States, for example. Um, what, how does that structure fee structure work, and and why have you decided to go down that route? Yeah, all, all conversations eventually end up at a fee model uh, conversation, <laughs> which is which, which is great. Uh, uh, because it, it, it's, it's it's interesting, isn't it, Rob? All the things we talk about, or I, I talk about in my professional life, it's, it remains as one of the most contentious uh, and emotive conversations mm. that, that exists. And there are strongly held opinions on sort of e- either side. So our, our model, and we're, we're even, we're sort of evolving, we're evolving the language. And so just to be clear, when I built the business, when I started a business, we charged our clients a percentage of the investment assets that we kind of looked after for them, which is the traditional, remains a traditional model. Um, and I guess as a function of the, the curiosity that I referred to earlier on, and the drive to understand, to get better, and also the empathy, the client-focused view that we had, myself and my colleagues kept discussing this and kept thinking, gosh, this is, there's something just not quite right about charging somebody a percentage of their, their pension fund or something. Uh, for all this other valuable work that we're doing. Mm. It seems somehow wrong. So we ended up spending a lot of time discussing and debating it internally. And I've got some very, very you know, smart, intellectual, thoughtful uh, colleagues. And we sort of you know, worked out the pros and cons of each, of each method. And over six years ago now, we effectively just flipped a switch overnight and we moved to what we call a flat fee model, a non, non-ad valorum, a non-percentage flat fee we're increasingly starting to use language around value-based fees because we're trying to align uh, where we create and deliver value to the, the, the fee structure. So, um, you know, why, why did we do this? We saw a number of challenges from both the client's viewpoint, but also from our viewpoint. Um, and we produced a lot on this. We produced white papers, documents, calculators, any number of things but the mm. fundamental challenge that we felt from the client's viewpoint was number one there was a conflict of interest from our viewpoint because mm-hmm. um it's a bit like going to seeing you're getting a you know going to a doctor and the only way the doctor got paid is if he prescribes a, a particular type of drug for you when the answer might be go go home and ha- have a rest and you know take the rest of the day off that might be the most sensible medical advice so the conflict of interest um because we knew in the work that we did the sort of comprehensive financial planning Often, the best advice was, for example, pay down some debt, give money to your children in a tax-efficient way, a number of other things which were not about asset gathering, about us adding more assets. Uh, but what, So that was good quality advice. Um, it wouldn't, it, we would not have got paid for that advice in the traditional assets under management model. And it might in some ways compromise the, the type of advice. Or whether it did or not, it might have uh, created that suggestion uh, to the client, the client or the prospective mm. client. Uh, the second thing that we just didn't like was cross-subsidy. We liked the idea of running a commercial business where every client we work, worked with was profitable, different different levels of profitability, but we didn't want to have effectively the wealthier clients subsidize the less wealthy clients. That's exactly what happens. And it's bizarre if you think about it. There's no other industry, as far as I'm aware, whereby you know, effectively buying in bulk, you pay much more. Normally, if you buy, yeah. you know, you buy... A can of beans or ten, uh, you know, crate of beans. You get a discount if you're buying in bulk. Um, but with uh, with wealth management, mm-hmm. financial planning, you actually pay more. So as you know, the cl- on, a, on, a, on a traditional one percent model, the client with a hundred thousand pounds pays a thousand pounds a year. The client with a million pounds pays ten thousand pounds a year. 
frankly, not a massive difference in terms of the service experience. And that, that's a huge multiple. And therefore, we didn't want to necessarily employ a cross-subsidy model any longer. And the, and the last part of it was the effect of compounding costs. You know, as whoever is Einstein or somebody, somebody smart once said, um, compounding is the eighth wonder of the world. And it is if you work, if it works for you, it, it's, it is horrific if it works against you. So if you look at compounding costs, if you charge fees which go up in line with long-term capital market returns, um, that is hugely significant. I know that our costs, our main costs of overhead, our office space, our salaries and so on, they don't go up at that level. So why would we want our fees to go up? And you project, project forward over 10, 20, 30 years. That is material to the client. And actually, it impacts you know, how early they can retire, whether they can help their kids, a number of other things. And when you do this, when you do the maths, it's, yeah, it's, it's very, very revealing. So those were from the client's viewpoint. We just felt that we could no longer sustain this model. It didn't make sense. We wanted to have integrity in everything that we did. And we felt that we could no longer do that on a percentage charging basis. And then you apply to the business and ourselves, and this would apply to any other advisory firm. And I've, you know, I've often said it, if, you, if it wasn't invented, you wouldn't invent it today. Because what business would you start and would you align your future revenue, uh, have it aligned completely to something over which you've got zero control, which is the, the investment market? Knowing that the, the capital markets will fall and have historically, history tells us that every number of years fall they could fall by 20 30 percent or more and they could stay low for a long period of time which means that your income and your revenue will stay low for a long period of time which the knock-on effect is you're going to have to make staff redundant you're going to have to make all sorts of very 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 difficult decisions just at the time your clients need you most you're cutting back on resources you're cutting back on staff you you, it just again it seems commercial suicide to try to to do that doesn't make any sense at all from the business owner's viewpoint Exactly right. I, I mean, from from a uh, content producer's point of view, I mean, uh, our, our firm Regis Media pr- produces educational content for financial advice firms, um, and clearly, you know, it's massively important. The the time where uh, clients really need help, uh, you know, with behavioural coaching and, and being reminded about, you know, what we can learn from the history of the financial markets is you know a kind of march 2020 situation where you know it, it looks as though the, the sort of world is is caving in um th- thankfully um m- most of our clients stuck with us we, we we had one client in in the us who uh, do have a a kind of percentage fee model and and they said ah oh, we, we we've suddenly lost you know x amount of income we've decided we're going to have to cut back on content and i'm thinking well Crikey, this is just when your clients need that content more than ever. Yeah. As you say, it's 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 a very emotive subject. I I I try not to be too sort of dogmatic about it. I think I think there is a place for percentage fees, particularly for those with uh, smaller portfolios. But but um, would would you agree with me that we're going to see quite a lot of movement in in terms of advisor remuneration, certainly in the UK over the next few years? Uh, I believe so. I believe we're already seeing it. Uh, the, I'm I'm now part of an emerging group of maybe I think six or eight firms that are fully embracing this model, and we're sort of sharing thoughts and ideas. Um, Commercial realities will drive some of this as well. 
uh, I know for a fact we are a, a, a quite a number of our new business inquiries, particularly the the sort of upper end high net worth type uh, new business inquiries, uh, are coming to us on the back of our our stance around fees because they're waking up to the idea that they are paying significantly more, um, and not not just it's, it's not just the quantum of how much they're paying. Just I want to need to be clear about that as well. S- some clients will pay us more than a traditional percentage charge. But they, they know why they're paying that and they know the way that the value is aligned to the level of the fee that they are paying, which is a far more um, preferred mm. option. So and I, I hear anecdotally that some firms are getting pushed back on their percentage charging basis. So that might drive them. You see, again, I've, as I've said many times in the past, I get why percentage exists because it's simple. It's easy to facilitate. People get it. And until the entire world just wakes up and says, I'm not going to pay that anymore. Uh, then it's, uh, it's it's likely to stick around. Again, it's a generational thing. From what I see, I, I speak to quite a few younger financial planners and people setting up their own businesses. And it's I think it's rare, the ones I've spoken to, that they start a new business on a percentage charging basis. Those that, it, it's, it's, it's people like me who've been around a long time. It's hard to change. It's, a, it's an inbuilt philosophy. It's a belief. And why, why change now? I think certainly the... The larger firms, the decision makers, and the sort of board level at the larger wealth management firms, it's it'd be way too disruptive for them. You know, we, we were small enough and nimble enough to sort of flip the switch overnight because we wanted to do it, but the um, it, it would cause a lot of disruption to change. So the point, I, I believe that it is changing, but it's almost a generational shift. It will take ten years plus to be a, a sort of meaningful change. But meantime, you know, from from my, my personal viewpoint, from a commercial viewpoint, I'm more than happy that the change is slower because we're winning, you know, fantastic new client mandates um, because of, you know, the fact that mm. interestingly, you know, the, some of the stuff that you've done, Robin, in the past, and certainly the, the, the mainstream uh, press seems to have picked up on this quite a lot. And every now and again, they put a spotlight on the shape of fees, fee structures. Um, but the, the ov- overall, this, I, I think it is a direction of travel. It's an evolution, not revolution. But as I have also said in the past, to me, it's the kind of the icing on the cake. If you have, I would rather someone did you know, proper uh, um, evidence-based investing and proper planning and real behavioral coaching uh, mm-hmm. and charge a percentage than they did none of those things and they charged a flat fee. So I think it's, it's getting, it's, it's almost a foundational thing. It's building, building from the ground up. There's some absolutely essential, important component parts of a world-class, you know, gold standard financial planning experience. And it's the things I've mentioned. And, and once you've mm. nailed all that and you're delivering that consistently, then have a think about your sort of compensation, how it works. Uh, and is it, is it fair and reasonable from your viewpoint and the client's viewpoint? Alan, we, we've covered a lot of ground. I'm, I'm conscious of your time. I do just have two more questions to ask. And they're quite big questions, but if maybe we could uh, answer them answer them briefly. But okay. um, the, the first is, you know, financial advice has had a very kind of mixed press in the UK in 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 recent years, and and clearly there are a lot of bad eggs. When I say a lot of bad eggs, proportionately there are very small uh, yeah. proportion of the industry. But they've certainly let the side down. Um, but but how confident are you that? you know, things are changing and, and that firms are kind of getting their acts together now in terms of, uh, you know, really providing clients with what they need 
how hopeful are you about the future of advice in the UK? Uh, I'm very hopeful. I am what I would refer to as a rational optimist. I'm always a glass half full rather than glass half empty uh, person. And again, referring back to my self-appointed status as an industry veteran, this is chalk and cheese where we are now from where I came into the industry in the late 1980s. Um, it's just entirely different. The sort of the, the, the standards, the levels of qualification. I think the debate, because on, I think you know, media and um, and some of the materials that people like you are putting out, Robin. I think it's great because it facilitates debate, conversation, and we all learn from it. There are always going to be rotten apples. There are in every. There are in the medical profession, the legal profession, everything else. Uh, but slowly but surely, they become um, less and less, and they get exposed to a greater extent. And therefore, um, I think you know, behavioural change again it evolves over time. Having said that, every now and again, I'm horrified by things I read, I see, and indeed I experience. You know, again, when we win clients over from sometimes from other firms, and I look at some of the advice that's been given in the past, you know, throw my hands up in horror at some of it, but. I get the sense that slowly but surely it is it is improving. I think, as I say, the, the kind of the, the regulatory regime, the sort of levels of qualifications and so on, um, are driving it to the right place. And if you, as I say, it's very easy to, to be critical about a lot of things in life in general. But if you look back over the last you know, 20, 30 years, the industry has moved on a lot. And therefore, and, I, and I'm very, very encouraged. I, I spend quite a bit of my time speaking with young financial planners coming into the sector, you know, in their, in their twenties mm. and gosh, you know, I love it. They're, they're full of energy. They get it. They understand what this is all about. They're not bogged down by legacy thinking. And I think, I, you know, some of the people I can think about, you know, the, the future of the industry and, the, and this particular sector of, of it, that this profession, I think is in very good hands looking at some of the, 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 the younger people coming through mm. into the community. So yeah, I, I'm, I am optimistic. Yes. There's, there's still, a few things to iron out, and I guess there always will be. Um, but overall, I'm, I'm positive. Like you, Alan, I, I am encouraged by the calibre uh, of of young people entering the profession, uh, but also their character. You know, they're, they're people of of, of character, and, and and Warren Buffett talks a lot, doesn't he, about the importance of hiring people with with character. Yeah. Um, Final question, what would be your advice to those kind of talented young people entering the profession today? You know, what 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 could one piece of advice could you give them to 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 help propel them uh, in this uh, in this in this profession? Yeah, I mean anyone coming in right now they are going they're entering an industry in transition. And so you've got the old guard who are still in positions of authority in most of the businesses. Um, and they may not be, on average, quite so amenable to some of the new thinking, the new ideas, the new insights. So that that itself is a challenge. But I, I would just, I would say, there's, there's a couple of key points. Some are some are obvious, and some are perhaps less obvious. Number one, get qualified. You've got to when you when you're young, um, you should have more energy. You should have more time. Um, and so you know, be, being um, a level six chartered financial planner now in our sector. That's that's now a hygiene factor. It's table stakes, but you've got to get there. So get your head down, go through the process, get qualified to that level as a minimum. Number one. The second thing was, and I've mentioned a couple of times through our conversation today, Robin, is this concept of just be curious. Get, be you know, read all you can. There's a lot of material out there. 
listen to podcasts, you know, absorb information, watch YouTube videos, find people in the community that you like, that you respect and admire, and look at the content that they're putting out. Uh, I think this is some fantastic, as I say, in the UK, US as well, and other parts of the world, find out um, what the best ones, the ones that you really like, and absorb it and spend a lot of time picking up the best best ideas. Um, and maybe, well, I'd like to say get into a great firm because great firms are few and far between at the moment. They're becoming um, more um, common. But whilst you are, you are this sort of, you've got to identify who you believe to be the best firms and try to get, you know, move for a position within them, within those, or re- reach out to, to them because that's a big part. But whilst, and if it, that's not available to you at the moment, um, I would suggest that you, um, to use a phrase, you build your own tribe. So you should start creating your own content. So start a blog, start writing. I'm a big fan of the idea of, of niche and be, becoming a sector specialist. And if you've got a particular passion or interest, whether it's, I don't know, marathon running or, or playing hockey or whatever it might be, um, identify a community that you think you enjoy hanging out with, you enjoy, and you understand the unique issues and challenges that they've got. And then just start. I think that for me, a blog would be the easiest thing. Build your own blog, open your uh, um, WordPress site or something similar and just start writing and slowly but surely don't, you know, don't be despondent by the fact that, you, you know, you only get half a dozen readers, you know, in the early days. You constantly do it because I think writing will helps uh, distill your thoughts and ideas and, and it becomes, you begin to build your body of work. And once you've got that, you can create other content. And slowly but surely people will follow you. People will like you, like the way you are speaking and writing. And if you're a young person in a profession, you know, you, 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 you can't imagine five years and 10 years out, but, you know, believe it or not, it will come. It will come around. And if you've spent a lot of time creating your own content, focused on your sort of unique sector that you, you'd love to work more with, then, you know, your future self will thank you for doing that. Mm. So, you know, carve your own identity and create your own content. I would absolutely second that. Alan, thank you so much for, for all your uh, wisdom um and for your time um uh, giving your time for this uh, interview and and uh, i really wish your uh, company capital asset management all, all the best for the future thank you very much Rob. much appreciated i really enjoyed it all the best and that's about it for this episode thank you to alan smith from capital asset management and thank you also to our sponsor regis media Please do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. You'll find us on both SoundCloud and iTunes. And finally, if you've enjoyed this episode, please write a review. We'd love to get your feedback. Thank you for listening. And from me, Robin Powell, and our producer, James Cresswell, goodbye.